Hello and welcome to our University of Strathclyde podcast series, run out of the world-famous School of Education, right in the heart of the beautiful city of Glasgow in Scotland. We bring you a mix of meet and academic interviews, thought pieces, conversations and provocations on all things education, to give you a glimpse into our world-leading education research here at Strathclyde and of course to stimulate your questions and thinking around the meaning, purpose and practice of education in schools, in communities, and of course, in all our lives. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the School of Education podcast here at the University of Strathclyde. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Maggie McCaskill, who is one of our part-time teaching associates. Welcome, Maggie. Thank you, Claire. It's great to be here. So I suppose you've joined us relatively recently, um, and some people know you better than others. So maybe you want to paint a wee bit of a picture about who you are and where you came from before you joined us. Okay, so um, I've been at the university since November 2020, but obviously I joined during lockdown, which was a time when we saw each other mainly on screens. But having said that, you know, we've got such a lovely welcoming team here that I have made connections, which is great. Um, prior to joining the university, I was an ASN teacher. Uh, for 23 years. I graduated in 1999, hope I've got my sums right, and then I did my probation and uh, then went straight into ASN, which had always been my ambition from a very, very young age. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more later around the, how that came out um, within my own research and, and my kind of positionality. Um, so early on in my ASN career, I specialised in autism. And I moved on then to become a principal teacher of a unit for children with autism and specific language impairment. Following that, um, I began to work in complex needs and um, I worked at a, a granted special school and then I became um, a principal teacher of a complex needs department within a large ASN school. So professionally, that is my kind of background. Um, academically, I suppose, you know, my work has um, right through my journey, I suppose, in academics, my master's focused on metacognition in young people with language impairments and uh, my doctorate focused on um, agency and choice for young people with complex needs, wonderful, exceptional young people. So what would be helpful, I think, before we start to talk about your, your PhD is that maybe you could explain a wee bit about what you mean when you talk about complex needs? With joy, I will do that. Yes. So um, the young people who have my heart and who I am extremely passionate about are those young people who are very marginalised within the education system. And they're marginalised because really the complexity of their needs means that um, there are smaller numbers of these young people and also smaller numbers of teachers who are experienced in um, working collaboratively with these exceptional young people. So I'll give you an example of, of one of my own pupils who will call F. So F is a wheelchair user who requires a pusher. Mm -hmm. um, F has cerebral palsy, epilepsy, a visual impairment, um, is oxygen dependent, requires suction, gastrostomy feeding, does not speak the way you and I speak, but speaks using his body and his gesture and his eyes and his smiles and his grimaces and is, um, you know, teaches me so much about joy 
and humour and intersubjectivity and tenacity. Oh. Those are the young people that I am passionate about. And I believe that everybody should have the oh. chance to experience interacting oh. with these wonderful, exceptional young people. And I'm hoping through my own work that that will become part of the profile of education mm -hmm. in Scotland. That that was a really nice. It was really nice to have that. Um, I suppose illustration and I mean the word complex. I suppose there are certain assumptions we carry yes. around complex, yes. and the complexity that that young person experiences is really quite enormous in their lives. And I suppose we're thinking about how we cater for that in the institutional context of schooling. Yes. Then it becomes even more of a challenge. I suppose. Yes, and, and what we do find is that these young people are always categorised by deficit mm -hmm. language, by can't do, is not capable of, but actually what we need to see is the capabilities of the, these young people, and, and that's what I hope to help other people to understand, I suppose. And one way in which I suppose you want to do that is through your own research, and you mentioned your PhD, so tell us a bit about your PhD. Absolutely. So I'll, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll go back a little bit in yeah. my journey, which kind of prompted the subject choice around my um, ED. Um, so when I worked at a granted special school, um, I worked with a primary class who, similar to my lovely people that I described earlier, one young man used a voice output communication aid, another young man communicated with his eyes, um, and we worked together, and, and together with these young people won the Scottish Education Award for Modern Foreign Languages in 2015, the first time it had ever been won mm -hmm. by an ESN school, the first time it had ever been won um, by young people who don't speak in the way that you and I speak, don't experience the world in the way that you and I experience the world. Um, and, and this really prompted me to say, well, how do other people not know that these children have capability? It's our unique way of interacting with them and the relationships that we build with them that, that helps to elucidate these voices. So my passion was very much around elucidating these hidden voices and winning that award with the young people really kind of spawned my journey. Everyone was so amazed that those young people could, could win this award, could con communicate in Spanish. You know, when I started the Spanish journey, people said to me, you don't even speak in English. Why are you teaching in Spanish? That's just ridiculous. People don't understand. Mm -hmm. So that spawned the kind of topic of my ED, which was around helping to elucidate the voices of young people. And I don't like the term complex needs, I have to be honest, but young people with complex needs within the Scottish education system. Um, so you know, that was really my kind of journey, that's the history behind it. And 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 also the, the kind of lack of research which compounds the, the situation that these young people find themselves in, which is marginalised within the education mm -hmm. system. Their voices are not uh, present in any of the literature, in much of the research, and in everyday teachers' dialogues about education. And, and you know, for me, that's wrong. Mm -hmm. So what I want to do is, is to make it clear that these young people are equally a part of the education system and can contribute. So when I saw how, how what a paucity really of research there was, I decided that this was definitely the route that I wanted to go down. And, you know, within my literature review process, it was clear that even the little research that was 
available was pointing very much to that kind of lack of, again, lack of subject access, you know, for example, the language of all children in the Scottish policy mm -hmm. rhetoric, I'm not convinced that it actually covers these children or that teachers necessarily, we as a, as a cohort necessarily understand that these young people are, are part of any potential cohort mm -hmm. that we could find ourselves with in the classroom. So, you know, that was kind of what I hope to elucidate through my research. They're part of the all and we can make sure that their voices are heard and that their agency they afforded agency through the following strategies, through adopting methodologies that, that elicit their voices, I suppose. Maybe you could tell us a wee bit about those strategies that, that you were yes. so um, this is tied in with actually one of the limitations of my research. I uh, began my data collection just as lockdown was announced. More fantastic. Uh, which was <laughs> incredibly stressful. The young people that I'd hoped to, um, I guess, gather the voices of would require longitudinal input. Those young people benefit from approaches called intensive interaction, where you spend time uh, forming an intensive intersubjective relationship with the child and you monitor their kind of smiles and their eye contact and you see how much they're enjoying subjects in school or not. And you, you kind of work with them that way. The young people that I did end up working with were still classed under that deficit label of having complex needs but many of them were able to um, elucidate or elicit some vocabulary either through the use of symbols mm -hmm. to support with that or, or through um, assistive technology such as eye gaze or voice output communication devices so um, those were the methodologies I used I, I gave symbolized resources for consent and for answering questions I'm very experienced in using um assistive technology and alternative and augmentative communication with my young people. So those were the kind of methodologies that I used to ensure that I tied in with their communication and I wasn't putting my, my presumptions about whose voice was important onto them. Later, I'll talk about what I would go back and change about that if I had had more time and it hadn't been locked down. <laughs> what age group was, was this? So the young people ranged from, I think my youngest was 10, right yeah. up until 17. Yeah. And and were you working with them on a one-to-one -one basis? Yes, I was. So I, I worked, actually did my research within the school that I worked in at the time. So the children mm -hmm. all knew me. Um, so I was working with them on a one-to-one -one basis, although I did have, um, you know, their children's familiar support assistance mm -hmm. with them um, if necessary. I'm I'm interested in what you were saying about um, how you understand voice because I know there's a lot of work around um, yes. what we understand by voice and um, the idea that um, the spoken word is often privileged. Yes. So Absolutely. maybe you could talk to us a little bit about um, how you understood or and how you understand voice um, when you were working as part of that. Um, in that context and then how not so much how you elicited the voice because you've given us examples of that but what did that look like then when you're working one-to-one -one with a child what were you trying to find out what kinds of things were you asking or exploring with the children okay if, so if we were to be watching you do this kind of research because I think it is a really big um challenge the idea of engaging with voice that isn't bearable. Absolutely, but also an opportunity to make so many Absolutely. Feelings. 
Um, so what I understand by voice, as you've said, um, you know, we we have a lot of um, subjectivity in society around whose voice is most heard, whose voice is most valued. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be people, I guess, who who maybe don't communicate in traditional or what we would consider traditional ways, whose voices are less heard. I, I guess that that ties in with that, that presumption about whose voice is valued, but also the experience and I guess confidence of people in society to interpret voice in others way, uh, other ways. So for me, uh, thinking of my wonderful young people, voice can be an eye contact, voice can be a movement to the side, voice can be a grimace, voice can be a, a smile, a giggle, a, a grab mm -hmm. your hand and wiggle it upside down. Voice can be a symbol exchange where, where you know, I, I say to a young person, oh, you know, let's look at your symbols. How are you feeling today? Are you happy? Are you sad? Are you tired? Are you hungry? They look at happy. That's voice. That's the, that's mm -hmm. symbol. Voice can be an electronic device where, where, you know, we are becoming more familiar with those, you know, where someone types in their response or uses their eyes to select a response. So there is such a huge spectrum of voice in society. But what society does not do well is to recognize that a movement is voice or, or a sound or a giggle is voice uh, that symbol is voice it's all should be considered equal but it's not um so to elicit voice the type of questions that I was working on with my young people were very much about um the kind of subjects that they enjoyed I I took it from the lens of subject access because of my previous experience in modern foreign languages um mm -hmm. with with the young people that I'd explained a bit earlier and so I for example with one young person who was able to um point to symbols for their answers so I said to her you know what subjects do you really enjoy in school look let's see what we've got here we've got art we've got drama we've got swimming we've got science and she was familiar with the symbols for all of these subjects because it was part of her symbol vocabulary so she was able to point to art and point to happy and then give me a smile a thumbs up which was great and and you know there were other Conversely, one young person, very much like myself, used his eyes to look like math and then signed, pointed to the symbol for go home. Oh. I, and I totally got that. So that was that was the type of thing. Um, subsequently, I don't know if we're going to touch on this later, but subsequent to that, you know, I still feel that there is a cohort of learners missing here. And those are the ones who really have very little, um, I guess, movement that they can self-direct. Mm -hmm. So that is very much about forming that longitudinal relationship with young people and, and learning their communications and what each little kind of facial expression or, or turn of the head, you know, children who had, don't have much voluntary movement must use different approaches. And that's what I hope to do next. So before we get to what you hope to do next, yes. tell us a bit about your findings. What, what was most significant in what you found? So, I mean, there was lots of significant findings, you know, key, I suppose, ultimately, we need to get better at a lot of things for these young people. I was still having, um, obviously, my work was firsthand account with the pupils, but also firsthand account with teachers mm -hmm. who had experience in the field. And teachers said to me, I'm comments such as, I can see the fear in other teachers' faces when my pupils approach. Mm -hmm. And 
teachers use phrases such as, oh, it's such a learning curve. There's no training. I didn't know anything. I learned from more experienced staff. So one of the key findings was we need to raise understanding of the role of these young people in education. Furthermore, we need to um, give, you know, training, a comprehensive training package so that all teachers and, and policymakers as well understand the language of all also refers to these young people. Um, so, you know, that was a key finding. Um, a second key finding, though, positively, is that, you know, it's the teacher's commitment to inclusive pedagogy that is paramount here. It's not how much you know about something or a subject. It's how much you're willing and open to find out and to adapt based on your relationship and knowledge of the individual. Um, and that is key to students' experience. Um, you know, tied in with that, I suppose, students' experiences were very much dependent on staff attitudes, you know, <laughs> as I said before, why are you trying to teach him Spanish, he can't even speak English, mm -hmm. we still see those attitudes, we still see teachers as being the gatekeepers of children's experiences, and, and you know, we're very guilty of allowing adults to kind of mediate children's decisions in education, particularly for these young people. So we need to understand, we need to turn the thinking around, I suppose, away from those kind of deficit and medicalized models towards the idea that these students have agency and capability. And with the right methodology, as I described earlier, they can have agency, they can have choice and ownership of their own learning. Um, you know, we need to view them as capable. So that all makes perfect sense. I mean, it, it's, it just seems to be like, well, why do we not think that already? But clearly it's important work and it's necessary work if it's um, raising the profile of a particular group that, as you see, are marginalised, that we should be accounting for and taking into account when we're thinking about educating all children. So in what ways does that feed into your work at the university how are you managing to incorporate that into what you do here either as part of your teaching with um, student teachers or um, practitioners who are who are working with us following qualification well i suppose um if you're thinking to the i teach on the postgraduate and primary courses and some of the ba courses so i suppose if you think about the standard for provisional registration and the kind of um the values, the professional values, you know, mm. at the heart of everything we do as teachers should be social justice. So I suppose this work really ties in with the messages I transmit to students around social justice and, and you know, I suppose narrowing that down to specificity, that's hard to say, um, mm. you know, social justice for these children is much more than just wheelchair access into the classroom, isn't it? It's participation and engagement and, and pedagogical I guess, adaptations that, that facilitate that, you know, as you say, these are all our children and, and it's trying to get those messages about social justice across to students. Aside from that, you know, um, looking with students at the National Framework for Inclusion that some of our colleagues have worked on as well and highlighting that as when they are self-evaluating their own mm -hmm. practice is really useful. 
Additionally, students will often come to me and say, you know, I I've got this particular student or, um, you know, I'm working with a young people, what would you suggest? Um, also, within the university, people quite often ask me to do kind of little ad hoc things on their courses around inclusion, mm -hmm. um, around ASN or complex needs. Um, for the university, I suppose I, I do run CLPL on mm -hmm. complex needs for some of the local authorities and the unions and, and through the university's CLPL catalogue as well. And, and, you know, I've got some new ideas for how I can develop that maybe going forward for other courses. And, um, you know, coming back to, I suppose, the importance of voice and agency for these young people and the idea that it is your commitment to social justice that will allow that to happen and your commitment to inclusive pedagogy, which is something I try to kind of embed in my teaching mm -hmm. of students, but also in my CLPL as well for those who are less confident around facilitating that. Um, I suppose within the university itself, in terms of um, citizenship work, I've been lucky enough to um, form a group with Aileen Kennedy and we're beginning to look at um, how messages about inclusion are transmitted through initial teacher education. I'm not sure if you're aware of the ASL review that took yeah. place recently, the, the Morgan review. So, you know, within the Morgan review, um, Angela Morgan clearly stated that there are still groups of children that we don't understand enough about and you know there are misconceptions about she also talked about you know consistency within ITE around the messages that that we do and um, gives to students and, and you know the activities that we embed I suppose so it's a really interesting opportunity to be involved in some work around that and excited to see where that that goes to and potentially very very impactful you know you've got a real opportunity to, to affect positive change in practice absolutely absolutely so if you were able to influence policy and practice with only one piece of advice <laughs> that's hard <laughs> what would what would that be oh gosh one piece of advice is is really really difficult for me because there are lots and lots of different uh, pieces of advice I could get on my soapbox about I suppose it's promoting the understanding of these exceptional young people amongst the language of all, mm -hmm. they're all our children, and elucidating those hidden voices, making them seen as part of the kind of education system. And that apply, applies to the policy rhetoric, I suppose, and how that is enacted within schools and in individuals, how they see all children. Are there others? that don't apply and uh, how can we make sure these are seen as these young people are seen as part of the education system and you know my ideas for that I've already said about um you know robust CLPL that's countrywide that's across all schools um but things like a charter of educational rights just to bring that to life I suppose for for staff so I suppose um you know think about moving forward with some of the ways that we could enact that there's a phrase that you've used a few times that I find interesting when you refer to um, all our children, all our mm -hmm. children. And I think there's something there about the, it being all children, but also that they are our children. They belong to our society, our country, our culture, our education system. These are all children, but all our children. Absolutely. 
just because someone experiences life differently to the way we do who's to say we should make them something other we're all different we all have our differences and it's about embracing that and viewing them as capable my goodness some of the young people I've worked with are more capable than me and in many respects you know and, and it's about seeing that rather than seeing the equipment or the wheelchair or the or you know the, the toileting procedure it's about seeing them as a capable young person who is entitled to mm-hmm. equality of opportunity of a broad and balanced curriculum but also of inclusion in wider society and I suppose it's about overcoming that as, as that teacher referred to that fear because you know quite often we find people don't look our children in the eye because they don't know what to say. They don't know mm. how to interact. So I suppose it's about promoting inclusive communication as well. So what is next for you, Maggie, in terms of research or teaching oh, or whatever? What, what are you doing next? Well, I spoke earlier about some of the kinds of um, limitations of my research, I guess. Uh, the lockdown in particular was something that made sure that I wasn't able to realise my ultimate aim, which was my young people that, you know, communicate in, in vastly different ways. And, uh, you know, it's about using intensive interaction approaches with those children, which is, as I said, you know, that one-to-one going back or you know interpreting um their movements and copying uh it's completely non-verbal it's very physical um so I would like to um conduct I suppose conduct I don't like that word participate with these young people to uh have a longitudinal Mm -hmm. experience um with them and looking at I guess their experiences in school and how their voice and agency plays out, I suppose, in their experiences that they get to um, undertake across the curriculum. So do they have choice? How, how do people make that choice? And, and this is particularly for our most marginalised young people. So I'm very lucky. I've got a very wide network of um, professionals that I interact with very regularly. Um, you know, I've had offers of partnership with schools to do that. It's, so it's just I feel like things have been a bit of a whirlwind since finishing my EDDs. I haven't even thought about it, but I am starting to work with um, a little group in education Scotland talking about complex needs there's there's only three of us which tends to happen when we're talking about the children that I work with you know it's a small niche group but we're hoping to widen that out as I said you know we're trying to get feelers into the university initial teacher education with the little um, inclusion group that we hope to take forward and I guess I suppose it's just about finding my niche as well you know across what I can contribute to the university in terms of understanding um, the profile and place and rights of these young people so I haven't got a clue what I'm going to do with all of this yet. I haven't got a plan or a strategy, as is how I roll, but um, we'll get there. <laughs> we will, and it's an admirable, admirable ambition. Um, and, yeah, longitudinal, you certainly need time to, yes. to undertake that. So thank you very much for, for joining me today. I've, I found it fascinating listening mm-hmm. to you, and um, I've got so many more questions, so hopefully I'll catch you at some point and we can have a chat offline about about your work but thank you very much thank you for having me it's been great thank you for listening in to our strathclyde education podcast series we'll be back soon with another episode